0: We're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. As you're able, once more, let's stand together in honor of the word of the Lord. We don't do this out of of empty ritual. We do this as a tangible reminder to ourselves, a visible reminder to all who who would enter into this place, that it's the word of God that has full authority here. It's not the word of man. We submit ourselves before God's inerrant, infallible word. And so let's hear now the word of the Lord together from Ephesians chapter two, beginning in verse one, a passage well known to you, especially if this is your church, because it's the, the, the chapter that we're memorizing together as, a, as, a, as memory verses. Ephesians chapter two. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. We thank you for revealed truth. That through your word, we come to know you. We know what you are like. You reveal to us what pleases you and how we might worship you, how we can understand you. Lord, things we would never know apart from your spirit giving us your word and your spirit illuminating our understanding. And so we pray, God, that you would be glorified this morning. As, as your word is proclaimed, Lord, as we, as we consider deep truths from your word, I pray that you would be glorified. I pray for myself this morning, Lord, as, as I proclaim the truth from your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we pray that by your spirit, we can do what only you can do. That you would do, Lord, that which only your spirit working through your word does. And that is to call hearts that are dead to life. It is to, to illuminate blind eyes. It is to shape your people into the likeness of Christ. We pray that you would do your good work among us and in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. The end of October, it'll be seven years I've been here as the pastor of this church. It seems like not that long. And it also seems like a lot longer than that. In good ways, in good ways, in good ways. When when the elders asked me to consider becoming the pastor of this church, I was 99% sure, maybe a little higher than 99% sure, that the answer was a solid no. That there was no chance that I was coming To be the pastor here. Now, I loved this church. That wasn't why I I didn't think I should come. Even back then, I loved this church. And because I loved Maple Grove, when I came and sat down with the pastoral leadership team one Monday night, I told them, I don't think I'm your guy. I will help you find your guy, but I don't think it's me. And I pointed them to some very specific doctrines for why I'm not your guy. That that what I would be preaching if I came would be different than anything that had ever been preached from this pulpit in the history of this church. And those of you that have been here for a long time go, we know. We figured it out. Well, the next six weeks, we're going to address those doctrines specifically. I have taught all of them many, many times. There is nothing new that's going to be said over this next six weeks. As we have studied books, which is our usual practice, verse by verse, We have covered these things many times. The reason we've done it is because they're woven throughout all of the scriptures. But for the next six weeks, we're going to take a departure from our normal practice, our normal practice of verse-by-verse exposition. Normally, we start with a passage, and then we're going to spend all our time in that passage. And the main points are the main points of the passage. And all we're doing is explaining it and applying it to our lives. But this next six weeks are going to be different. These will be topical sermons. We're doing a short topical series on these specific doctrines. Those doctrines that I spoke to the pastoral leadership team about that night. That I was sure would be a deal breaker. And they would rescind their, their request for me to come be the pastor. They're called the doctrines of grace. But those doctrines that pertain to salvation. And so we're not going to be working specifically out of any one text. I, I began with Ephesians 2 just to get us grounded in scripture. These doctrines, I will admit, are controversial. They've been controversial here. Several people have left this church and stated this as the reason that they've left. Uh, And so I won't deny that. But I will say this. They're good. They're glorious. They are joy-producing truths. They are truths that if we understand them, will grow our worship. They will produce greater love for God within us they will produce within us greater motivation to faithfulness and so we don't shy away from them I'm not ashamed of them these are glorious and good these are God's truths they are called the doctrines of grace because these specific points of theology contain the purest expression of the saving grace of God that we can find these five biblical truths. They're called the doctrines of grace. They go by another name and it's the name people throw out when they say this is why I'm leaving. They're called the five points of Calvinism. And so if something inside you, a cold chill just shot up your back when you heard that word, I'm going to ask you to just settle down a little bit. Fire your inner lawyer for the next 40 minutes. Don't get worked up. It's a terrible name for them. We'll talk about that in a little bit. What these truths do, and here's why they matter, they, they supremely display the sovereign grace of God. The doctrines of grace are, are these. First, total inability. We, we saw, saw this in our study of the book of Romans. Paul paints a bleak picture of humanity in the book of Romans. Cemented into solidarity with Adam in sin and in rebellion and in condemnation and not caring to get out. What well, we just read from Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says it like this. He says it a little differently. He says, you're dead. You're dead in sin. We were all dead in sin. This, this is the sinful condition of all people outside of Christ. Radically corrupted by sin to the fiber of our being, such that we even have people who look at their young children and go, well, I can just see in them these proclivities towards certain behaviors, Towards certain ways to identify themselves. We've just always known. Where does that come from? It comes from sin within. Why don't we have to teach our babies to bite and to lie? We have to teach them not to bite and not to lie. Because it's in them. It's in them already. This is the state of humanity. Thoroughly depraved. Second, unconditional election. God's choosing from eternity past his elect for salvation. Only by grace. Not because of any merit in us. God didn't look through the corridors of time and see like this one's a good one. Now I'm going to go back and retroactively choose him for my team because I can tell he's good. Third is particular redemption. Definite atonement. That Jesus' death accomplished salvation. We talk about this all the time. The cross was not an attempt on God's part. Boy, I hope this works. No, it was an accomplishment of salvation securing salvation for his people. This is what's called irresistible grace. It is the, the effectual call of the Spirit of God as he unites the sinner to Christ in faith. It is God's summons for people to, to come to him, and his people will come to him. There's a general summons that goes out to the whole world through the preaching of our gospel. And then there's this internal call, this internal summons that comes to God's people that they will respond to. Jesus says it like this in John chapter 6. Verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. That's why we never see Jesus wringing his hands over those that don't come. Fifth, perseverance of the saints. Better said, the preserving grace of God. As Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And I will never cast him out. Jesus keeps all that he saves. God keeps all that he saves. They will persevere in faith. None will be lost. Jesus says this later in John chapter 6 and verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. So he says, no one can come to me unless. There it is. That's total inability. No one can come unless God does something. He says no one can come unless the Father draws here, draws him. That's sovereign election. The Father draws specific people to the Son. There, therein too is irresistible grace. They will come. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And he says, and I will raise them up. Well, there's particular redemption. Everyone that the Father draws to the Son will come to the Son, and everyone that the Father draws to the Son will be raised up by the Son on that last day. And in that promise is the perseverance of the saints. He will raise them up on the last day. All that the Father draws to the Son will come to the Son, and all who are drawn and come to the Son will be raised up on the last day. So, if your inner lawyer started up When I said that C word, I would just refer you to the words of Jesus here and say, get mad at him first, and then you can come after me, because it's all right here in one verse. That's just one verse. It's through the whole Bible. These five headings work together. They are inseparable. One comprehensive statement regarding the saving purposes of God. What we could say is there's really one doctrine of grace, We're going to talk about these five specific things, but there's really one, and it's this. God saves sinners. God saves sinners by his grace for his glory. These realities, the, the grace of God and the glory of God are bound together in inseparable ways. And so whatever most magnifies the grace of God is that which magnifies his glory the most. Whatever exalts God's grace... Is what most glorifies him. That's why he's chosen to save people like us. He didn't need to. He didn't need to create us. He didn't need to save us. But his glory is magnified in his grace. and his saving of the unworthy. And, And this exaltation of God's grace and glory is all over these truths, all over these doctrines. These doctrines are desperately needed in our churches because they give glory to God alone. That's why we need them. That's why they're so essential. Sadly, many of our churches have a very low view of God. There is a corresponding scale. The higher our view of ourselves, the lower our view of God. The higher our view of God, the lower our view of ourselves. And the less we trust in ourselves. But many of our churches preach a man-centered gospel. A man-centered gospel that frankly makes us look very big. Very important. And so correspondingly makes God look very small. But when we understand salvation correctly, it's then. It's only when we understand salvation correctly that God receives all of the glory for salvation. That none of it is shared. There's no sharing of glory to go around. And so these, these truths are, are just so easily summed up. In, in one biblical phrase that, that repeats itself numerous times in scripture. But we see it in Psalm chapter 3 verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what we're saying in all of this. That's what the doctrines of grace tell us over and over, coming at it from all different angles. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Savior. It's his. It's his possession. It's his to give freely. Any man, any woman, any boy, any girl who finds themselves in this, in possession of this salvation has it for one reason only. And that is God gave it. God gave it to them. God saves sinners. Sinners do not save sinners. Dead people do not save themselves. Dead people do not make themselves live. God saves sinners. Imagine with me two different theological systems. One flows from man's reason. Not reason in subjection to the word of God illuminated by the Holy Spirit, but reason that comes from our self-confidence. From our perception of what feels right. That that whatever feels right to me must be right. And if something sits uneasy in my stomach. It must be wrong. That must be the Holy Spirit directing me. That's got to be what it is. It's not just ingrained in me. Whatever seems right to my fallen understanding. Must be ultimate truth. We, We are just sure in this system. That man's. Faulty human reasoning has figured everything out, that we get it. We just instinctively know. I remember as a young preacher, I had this feeling growing up in the charismatic movement and starting in pastoral ministry way too young, before I was trained and ready and before I knew anything, and I just had this feeling, I'll just know what's right and wrong. I'll just know. I'll be able to feel it. If I hear something and it just doesn't sit right with me, I'm going to know that that's not right. I'm going to know that it's God's spirit leading me. I look back on that now and go, who let this kid behind a pulpit? Are you kidding me? You don't know anything. And I didn't know anything. I was involved in all kinds of weird antics. This, this one theology flows from man's reason. The other flows from God's revelation. It just begins with this thing that says, What's, what, my gut feeling is probably not right. It's certainly not trustworthy. I, my, my sinful mind needs to be taught. I need to be instructed from God's word. It needs to be subjected to the word of God. Such that my feelings don't, don't account for really anything. In comparison with the truth from God's word. In fact, it's my natural tendency, God's word says, to suppress the truth. And so I cannot trust it. I cannot trust my gut reaction to things. At the center of the first understanding is man, with man's free will being the centerpiece, that which can never be taken away, that which must be upheld at all costs. It is the central reality from which all things flow. And at the center of the second understanding is God, with God's free grace as that which must be upheld, that that centerpiece from which all else flows. These are two very different views of the universe Two very different views of everything, and it affects everything. It is the continental divide of theology, it has been called. You've heard of the continental divide that roughly runs along the Rockies, the Rocky Mountains. All the waters to the east of the divide flow to the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico. All the waters to the west of the divide flow out to the Pacific Ocean. Well, this is the continental divide of theology. If you really believe that God is sovereign over everything then all of the rivers of your thinking are going to flow towards God. And if you don't believe that, then all the rivers of your thinking are ultimately going to terminate on yourself. They're going to come down to you. Virtually every doctrine is affected by this central truth in some way. The doctrines of election and salvation and sanctification and prayer and perseverance and good works and rewards. Every doctrine is affected by every other doctrine. We can't just rip them apart and lift them out. In in God-centered theology, we see that God, by his free grace, decides who he will save. And by grace, he acts upon them. He regenerates them. That is, he makes them alive. He gives to them the gifts of saving faith and repentance, both of which are a gift of his grace. By his spirit, he works to sanctify them, causing them to will and to work for his good pleasure. Perseverance in the faith is not left solely up to the Christian. It depends on God's enabling grace and power. It's God who upholds and preserves the believer. We are not counting in our ability to hold on to him. We're trusting in his holding on to us. It's all of grace from start to finish. It starts with God. Although man is not a robot, man is included in the process. We respond to the regenerative power of God. As he makes us alive, we live like living people. As he opens our blinded eyes, we live like people who can see the truth. Man's involved in this process, but God is always responsible. It is always God's initiative and not our own. Well, in man-centered theology, we see that man's so-called free will is the centerpiece. It's the deciding factor. So if God does 99% for everybody in the whole world, and we just have to add that 1% in order to be saved, and some do and some don't, what separates the do's from the don'ts? Is it the 99% that God did? No, he did that for everyone. What separates them? It's the 1% that we did. That that notion is thoroughly man-centered and man-glorifying. There's no way around that. It's the centerpiece. Our free will is the centerpiece of of man-centered theology. God is not allowed to act apart from it. He must bow to it. He must, he must... It must be upheld. God cannot elect for salvation without first looking through the corridor of time and consulting our free will. Looking ahead and saying, okay, this one will choose me. Now I'll go back before the foundation of the world and choose them. Do you see how that makes that meaningless? Why does the Bible even use words like elect and election if it's that meaningless? If it's just, no, you chose right. It's almost like God's trying to rob our glory in that. It's all about our choice. He just has to look ahead and learn something about what we're going to do. And when you hear somebody say that God should learn something, you should just run screaming like you're on fire. Regeneration's not necessary before faith in this view. Instead, one's faith causes our regeneration. We are made alive because of something we did. Sanctification is seen as a product of our effort, certainly assisted by the Holy Spirit, but starting with us and our resolve and our ability to to buckle down and get things done. Perseverance is determined by, by our determination, by our effort. And so the believer in this system needs to at all times be careful not to lose their salvation. Because it's on us. You can see, I think, that these two systems of thought are virtually opposites in every way. In one, God reigns supreme, in the other, frankly, man reigns supreme. And I have no intention of pretending that these are equally valid, that they are equally biblical, that they are equally God-honoring views. They are not. The man-centered view is wrong. Just to be clear, the man-centered view is the popular one. It's the majority of American churches. I would say within our community, it's well over 90% of the churches. That's not trashing the other churches. I'm just telling you the reality of the situation. It is the view of every single pastor that this church has ever had until the last seven years. And it is called commonly Arminianism. Uh, And so... People, people hesitate to, to hear the word Calvinism and they go, that's named after a man. Well, so is yours, you just don't know it. It's called Arminianism. I have no intention of affirming this view. That being said, we're not about to start calling the wonderful saints who've been a part of this church for 100 plus years heretics or idolaters or dumb or anything else. I am grateful for the heritage of faith at Maple Grove Church. We stand here today because of the heritage of faith at Maple Grove Church. This issue is a central issue. It is not one that Christians ought to break up with each other over. It's not one that we ought to start hurling stones at one another. We can discuss the, the theology that's being done, and we don't have to affirm that. Oh, but I have no intention. These are our brothers and sisters. This is the bride of Christ. We will be spending eternity together. Whether it's the history of this church or whether it's most of the churches in our community and most of the churches in our country, genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we together are the bride of Christ. We will not have separate gathering spaces in the new heavens and the new earth. We will be together forever and we ought to act like it. I just want you to hear me say that. I want to be clear about that. I have no desire to throw anyone under the proverbial bus, but friends, these things actually are important. These things actually matter. We are making claims about God and that matters. So I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't matter. And I'm not going to pretend that these two contradictory views are somehow exactly the same or even. What we believe and what we claim about God matters and these are contradictory claims. They cannot both be true. And that matters. How do we get here? How do we get to these two contradictory systems of theology? They are both named after men, popularly named after men, from the 16th century. Specifically, one's named after John Calvin and one is named after Jacob Arminius. It traces all the way back to the Protestant Reformation. Calvinism is part of reformed theology. The Reformation, of course, you've heard plenty about. It's it's one of the greatest moments in all of church history. This, This return back to biblical teaching and authority. The truths of many doctrines were rediscovered. The light shone in the darkness and this spread throughout Europe and then all the world. We are a product of that. The word of God spreading like wildfire. Well, then in 1610, the followers of a man named Jacob Arminius published a document that was called the Remonstrance of 1610. This is where it all starts. The Remonstrance was a protest. It was a protest against certain biblical teachings of the Protestant reformers. It essentially said, here's five things. We agree about almost everything. Here's five things we don't like. This is nearly 50 years after Calvin's death. And it's even a year after Arminius's death. So neither one of these two men who, who, who these systems go by their name, neither one of that is, is really accurate. Specifically, here's what they addressed. Here were their contentions. One was a call for what, what they call prevenient grace. And that is God does a work in all people such that they can now choose him. So you were dead in sin, and then God made everybody mostly dead, if you're a Princess Bride fan. And now you've got within you the ability to choose him if you want to. And who chooses and who doesn't? Who's that up to? Us. Election was a response to foreseen faith. God looked through the corridors of time. He saw who would choose him. Who would have faith in him. And then he went back and retroactively chose them since he knew they were going to choose him. Another is universal atonement. Jesus died to make salvation potential for everybody. Possible for everybody, but only some would receive it. Next is resistible grace. Man's free will could trump, trump God's saving desires. And then the possibility of the fall from grace. In other words, Christians can lose their salvation. Or to put it in a more biblical terms, Jesus can lose a Christian. So those who opposed the doctrines of the Reformation and supported the teachings of the remonstrance became known popularly as... Arminians, because Jacob Arminius had popularized those specific teachings that they were protesting the, the Reformed teaching with. Those who opposed the remonstrance and held to Reformed teaching became known as Calvinists, because John Calvin was the most famous and greatest of the Reformed Bible teachers, the Reformation Bible teachers. And so when, you, when, when somebody says, and I, I hear this plenty, Those who hold to the doctrines of grace are just following the teachings of a man. You're just following John Calvin. What they don't realize is, in a very real sense, they're the ones following the teachings of a man. Arminius. They just don't know his name. And they just don't know the history. And they don't know that he started it. And that's the only reason there are any points of Calvinism or anybody talks about Calvinism. Is because of that. Calvin didn't invent these things. This all happened 50 years after his death. He was just teaching the Bible, and somebody came later and did that. It's just that he was the most famous Bible teacher. And so when someone brought in strange new doctrines to oppose the teaching of the Reformation, The response to those attacks became known on a popular level by John Calvin's name because he was the most most well known teacher who had who had really put things together in clear and understandable ways. These aren't Calvin's truths, these are God's truths. It's not Calvin's word, it's God's word. We don't care about Calvin's word. We care about God's word. Charles Spurgeon said this it's no novelty then that I'm preaching. It's no new doctrine. I love and proclaim these strong old doctrines. They are called by the nickname Calvinism, but which surely and verily are the revealed truth of God as it is in Christ Jesus. So Spurgeon said, it's got this nickname that's a guy's name, but that's not what it is. This isn't new doctrine. This is old doctrine. This is what the Bible teaches. So I just ask us as we study this next few weeks to humbly come before God's word, not the words of man, not our traditions, As we look into these matters and be willing to expand what might be too small in our minds regarding our savior, regarding his salvation, to be willing to be convinced by scripture, to drop things we should never have picked up. Thoughts about who God is, thoughts about what God's allowed to do. Thoughts about who we are and what we can and can't do. Thoughts that don't come from the Bible, that come from our traditions. We must all, all of us, myself included, all of us be willing to drop those things if we see in Scripture that they're not true. And friends, that is very hard for us to do. It's very difficult for us to do. Because most of these have names and faces of people we love attached to them. Someone we love taught us the things that we believe. And it feels like we're betraying them in some way. And so without knowing it, we don't even open ourselves up to the clear teaching of God's word because we can't. We can't let ourselves. And I'm asking us, let's do that. Let's let God's word rule supreme in our lives, in our understanding, in our hearts. We should all together prayerfully approach this topic, humbly approach this topic, seek to bring our understanding into alignment with what God's word actually teaches. The whole counsel of God's word, not lifting a verse here and lifting a verse there. What does God's word teach and what does it teach repeatedly? And believing it only because God's word teaching it. And not because any man says so. Letting scripture alone speak to us with full weight of authority. And humbling ourselves before it. Obviously as we go through this we're talking about the greatest subject matter we could ever talk about. We're talking about salvation. This means this. You're going to have questions. I'm going to have questions. We've all got questions. This, This is beyond us. But I'll say again, these doctrines have all been taught many times. Nothing new is going to be said here. In our various studies of various books, verse by verse, Romans was chock full of them. And before that, the book of John was chock full of them. We have covered all of these many, many, many times. None of this should feel entirely new to you. If it does, it just meant you weren't really paying attention and you were thinking about lunch. That makes me feel sad. They're not new to us. I won't deny there's much controversy surrounding them. It's true. But I'm not ashamed of these. It's not difficult for me to stand before you and preach these things. In fact, like Spurgeon, I love them. I love these doctrines. And you should too. Well, why, why is there so much controversy? Well, it's because although these things are not hard to interpret and understand, they are very hard for our human pride to accept. We just need to humbly submit ourselves before the Word of God, asking Him by His Spirit to give us eyes to see, to give us ears to hear. And you know what? You may never come around to seeing things exactly the way I see them, and I feel zero angst about that. It's just fine. <laughs> It's just fine. But I I want us to be a people of the word. I don't want us to come to that conclusion because, because, uh, was that like the five minute sign? (laughs) I'm not doing it. (laughs) Man, eager for baptisms. (laughs) No, it's, we might not all land in the same place and that's Okay. It really is. I'm not, I'm not threatened by that. I've never been threatened by that. But I do want you to understand what's being taught here. I do want you to understand why the teaching that comes from this pulpit is the teaching that comes from this pulpit. The teaching that happens in the Sunday school class is the teaching that comes from the Sunday school class. What's our purpose in studying these things? And you might still be thinking this. Okay, you're not embarrassed by it. You love it. Well, I don't like it one bit, and this is controversial. I don't know why we talk about it. Well... If you've been at this church at all, you know that we're not really afraid to talk about controversial things, whatever they are. And it's certainly not if the Bible teaches them. What's our purpose? What's the value in studying these things? I'm just drawing from some things I've heard from, from Steve Lawson here as why these things are valuable. And the first is simply that. The Bible teaches them. The Bible teaches these doctrines we're going to be studying. That, first and foremost, is why we should learn them. They, they are seen clearly throughout Scripture. They are not some ivory tower that only a select few should should devote themselves to learning and understanding. They're not man-made philosophies. They are the enduring, God-glorifying truths of God in salvation. And they are not tucked away in secret places in Scripture. They are front-loaded in the New Testament. By the time we get to the New Testament, it's just all right there for us. They are put in prominent places. Right at the opening of most epistles, it's it's all right there. Flip back with me just to chapter 1 of Ephesians, if you still have your Bible to Ephesians 2. If not, open it up to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and let's just read starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. So that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. These truths and we see this time and time again in the New Testament epistles. They are right on the front door, right on the front doorsteps of the book so that we have to trip over them if we're going to get in. We're going to make it into the book. We've got to trip over these to get there. They are unavoidable. And the reason they're so prominent and unavoidable is because they're glorious, they're good. Second, they magnify the grace of God. We see the overwhelming, undeserved. All-powerful grace of a sovereign God who saves for his own good pleasure. We say this time and time again about what it means for God to be sovereign. He does what he wants, when he wants, the way he wants. And he never has to ask anyone's permission. And Christian, that means you too. He doesn't need your permission to save you. He can just do it. And you couldn't give it. Because you're dead in your sins and trespasses until he saves you. He needs no one's permission. We see a God who is great, big. This is why they're called the doctrines of grace. It's all of grace. There's no higher ground to stand on, to behold God's sovereign grace than these precious truths that we will study together over these next few weeks. We see God's grace in them as truly amazing Third, their theology shaping. As we said earlier, they are the continental divide of theology. Every doctrine impacted by these beautiful truths, with either God at the center or man at the center. They produce in us fourth love and worship. Romans chapter eleven verse thirty six: For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. This this sums up the Apostle Paul's whole view of salvation. Every part of salvation proceeds from God. It begins in him. He initiates and it is accomplished by God. And no part of this process is any of the glory shared with man. Not one ounce. Not one little bit. To God alone be the glory. These are truths we can sing. It's why Christians ought to sing loud. Because we got something To sing about. We're not into singing breathy Jesus is my boyfriend music here. We sing truths worth singing. And we sing them loud. But if if our salvation is the product of our will. If it's the product of our choosing and our determination and our staying. That would make some pretty lousy hymns. There'd be no need to sing those loud. It is well, it is well. With my soul, with my soul, I sure hope I've done enough for it to be well with my soul. And I hope I'm able to keep it. Well, that's a bad song. The meter doesn't even work. When we see God's intentional love for his chosen people, how he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, how he brought us to ourselves, how in Christ he preserves us and loves us. How could we not love him in return? We love because God first loved us. Fifth, they crush sinful pride. We are desperate to be the heroes of our own story. We want to be the captain of our own fate. We are convinced that we would do better with this choice of salvation. That our loved ones who we we pray for and are concerned about. That they would do better with this choice of salvation than God would do. That somehow they're more trustworthy than he is. By the way, if we don't believe this is true, why do we pray for anybody? Why do you pray that God would save somebody if you don't believe that's what he does? You should just spend your time not praying but talking to them. Trying to convince them. Trying to make sure your words are perfect so you can win them over. No, we pray and we ask God to save people because God saves people. He does exactly what he did with the Apostle Paul. They are rebels. They are enemies. They are at war. And he knocks them off their high horse. And he transforms everything. And so we pray. And so our pride is crushed. We, we don't get to... Be the captain of our own destiny. Scriptural truths crush that vanity. These doctrines repeatedly remind us that God is the initiator of our salvation. God is the accomplisher of our salvation. That none of the credit goes to us. That none of the glory goes to us. He did not do 99% and we did the 1%. And that's what makes us stand out from our neighbor. He chose us. We didn't choose him. We have nothing to boast in but Christ Christ and Him crucified. Six, they produce joy, even in the midst of trials. If we understand these truths, they produce in us a settled, confident joy. If God is for us, if God has chosen us, if God is upholding us, if He has given His Son to secure our salvation, who could be against us? Who could separate us from that kind of love, from that kind of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Seventh, they ignite and revive our hearts. When whenever someone comes to understand these truths for the first time, they experience personal revival. It's always what happens. I have seen it over and over and over again. Many describe it as a second conversion. They don't think they literally got saved a second time, but they're saying, "I'm so enthralled with this God that I'm seeing that it's almost like being a brand new convert." I can't keep it in. They're so taken with the glory of God. It feels almost like being saved all over again. These truths have a way of pouring gasoline on the the fire of our hearts, igniting passion, invigorating passion. George Whitefield, that, that great colonial evangelist said, the doctrine of our election fills my soul with holy fire. Why was Whitefield such a preacher that even pagans like Ben Franklin loved to hear him preach? Although he didn't believe, it's because Whitfield was on fire. And Whitfield says it's these doctrines that set me on fire. Eight, they deepen our resolve. They produce deep-settled conviction that nothing's impossible with God. No situation is hopeless because God's sovereign. No sinner is too far gone because God is sovereign. No government opposition can hinder God's kingdom purposes because God is sovereign. Nothing can prevent the sovereign God from accomplishing his good purposes and from saving his elect. No one's too far gone. That loved one that we pray for, that we plead before the throne of God for day after day after day are not too far gone. The Apostle Paul writing as a prisoner in Rome writes this, 2 Timothy 2. I'm suffering bound with chains as a criminal but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul's in a hole when he writes this. He's in a dark hole in the ground like an animal and he knows that the sovereign God is surely going to accomplish every one of his good purposes through Paul's imprisonment. So Paul writes like an optimist from a hole. If God is sovereign, nothing is wasted. If God is sovereign, nothing is meaningless. So Paul endured shipwrecks and floggings and stonings and imprisonment because he was fully assured that God was going to use even those things to glorify his great name. That God was going to use even those things to save his chosen people. These truths motivate us to share the gospel. Because we understand that God goes before us and he opens the doors. God prepares the hearts of specific people to receive the gospel. He has not only appointed who will be saved, he has appointed how they will be saved. And so we can preach the gospel with confidence. God guarantees the success of his own gospel. He has an elect people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and it is simply our job to bear witness so that the pressure doesn't rest on our shoulders. We proclaim the, the, the truth of the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ, and God assures the fruit. God assures the outcome. Right. Tenth, and they solidify our assurance of salvation. They, they cause us to look to to trust in what God has done and not what we have done and are doing or will do. Our our assurance is not in our own righteousness, it's not in our own obedience, it's not in our own determination or resolve. It is in not our ability to hold on to him. It is in his ability to hold on to us. He initiated. He sought. He saved us. He holds us in his hand. He will keep us. And brothers and sisters, here's the reality. If you lack spiritual vitality, if you are not bearing fruit, if you are not courageous enough, if you are not joyful enough, if you are not filled with love and hope, if your assurance of salvation is lacking, it may be that it's because your grasp of God's great work in salvation is shallow. It's too shallow, it's too weak, it's too small. It may even be distorted and incorrect. It may be that without knowing it, man is at the center of it and not God. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's why we're preaching these things. Because that describes them true and honorable and just and pure and lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. And then Paul says, think, Christian. We live in a culture where there are plenty of churches that don't care whether you think or not. And they're certainly not going to make you do any thinking on a Sunday morning. That would keep the crowds too small. That's not what Paul tells us. He says, think. Think about who God is. Think about what God has done. Often people attempt to pursue God by rejecting theology. I don't want theology. I just want Jesus. Instead of God, what they get is a religion of their own making. One that has no real power. One that has no real stability. One that has no, no, no faithfulness. Paul says to us, if you want God, then study him. Come to know who he is. That's what theology means. It's what you believe about God. The the idea of studying God is not a popular one. It rubs people the wrong way. It sounds cold. It sounds clinical and scientific and mathematic. But studying God doesn't have to be that way. In fact, it shouldn't be that way. It must not be that way. The psalmist says this in Psalm 111 verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. This is how God has designed it all to work. True theology is a product of love for Jesus, and it produces love for Jesus. The picture that the the psalmist paints is an upward spiral of glory. I study God to know him, and the more I know him, the more I delight in him. And the more I delight in him, the more I want to know of him. And so I study him, and the more I see of him, the more I love him and The more I love Him, the more I want of Him, and the more I get of Him, the more I delight in Him. It just goes from glory to glory to glory to glory. It's not mathematical at all. We can study God the way we'd study the Grand Canyon, the way you study the ocean when you stand on the beach and maybe, maybe you see it for the first time and you're old enough to appreciate what you're seeing. It takes your breath away. You're speechless and you're in awe. That's what these doctrines do for us. When we see them, when when we understand them, we stand in awe. They take our breath away. Knowledge doesn't have to be dry and lifeless. Really, what's the alternative? What's the alternative to growing in the knowledge of God through the hard work of thinking? Ignorance, is that better? Falsehood, is that better? Just because we don't want to be uncomfortable? We're either building our lives on the reality of what God is really like, or we are basing our lives on our own imagination and misconception. Theology is just what we believe about God. And so the truth is 100% of human beings are theologians. The question is, is what you believe about God true or is it not true? So may, may we friends together in these next weeks press in. Press in to know God. Press in to know the truth about God, to know him in his word, to to be Bereans and search out the scripture and see if it's these things. And I'll just tell you, the Internet's not your friend. Most of the people who have that strong reaction to these doctrines is because they have heard a false presentation of these doctrines and they have been led to believe something that's not even true about this. Press in to God's word. When we, when we speak of passages here, look at them. Put them in your own words and see if they're saying anything different. Press in to know the truth about God. But more than that, may we press in together to know him more. To know God. To love God. To worship him rightly as we should in spirit and truth. May God grant these things to us by his spirit. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word. Lord, these these for some of us are challenging. For others of us who have have come to know and love these great truths and what they reveal about you, there was a time in our life where it was very challenging. And so we, we understand the challenges that our brothers and sisters might be facing right now. But I pray for us as a church. Lord, we don't want to be defined by men's teaching, by doctrine. We want the pure truth of your word. That is all we want. That's what we want to be defined by. That's what we want to live our lives by your word as the authority. It is only your word that is infallible. It's only your word that is inerrant. It is only your word that is God breathed. And so would you open our eyes by your spirit, your spirit who who breathed out these words, that we would understand them rightly, that we would see you rightly. That it would produce in us love and joy and hope and peace and faithfulness and assurance and and all of these things. Lord, that it would produce in us boldness to proclaim the gospel of your kingdom, knowing that you have your chosen ones throughout this world who will respond to the preaching of your word. And we pray, God, that we would be faithful to do our part. Pray, Lord, that we would live lives of faithful obedience, that our lives would bear forth the good fruit of salvation, that but Lord, we would be able to see in our lives that our lives would testify of your saving grace in our obedience to you. We, Lord, We know, Lord, that if we don't bear fruit in keeping with salvation, we would have no reason to believe that you have saved us. So we pray, God, that you would cause our faithfulness to grow, cause our fruitfulness to grow, cause our love to grow, and yes, Lord, cause our humility to grow. We pray that you'd be glorified in us and through us.